the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentango's message today is entitled, The Commitment Crisis in Christ's Return. And we hope you enjoy it. You may already know that due to our time constraints, we are not always able to bring you the complete message at one sitting. But you are always able to go to reachingyourheart.com. And there on the main page, you'll see the broadcast schedule. This message in its entirety, as well as any of the other broadcasts you hear are available there for you to download or listen to. Let's get underway with the first portion of the commitment crisis in Christ's return. Here now is our pastor teacher, Michael Oxentenko. Father God, we don't want to profess Christianity. We want to act it out and believe it. And so, Father, forgive us as Christians when we have been a contradiction to the faith that has been given to us handed down to us by Christ himself through the holy apostles, given to us through the word of God, through the prophets and the apostles. And I pray, O Father, in my life today that you will renew me. I am by nature a sinner. I am prone to failure. I need Jesus. I need Jesus to preach the word and to live it. Bless us, Father. Today is a day in which we will look at a portion of the scripture that speaks very plainly to us so we can be ready for the second coming of Christ. In Jesus' name, be with us. Amen. Dr. Zinko made international news. He performed emergency surgery in the midst of that snowstorm. How many of you were caught up in the snowstorm? All of us were. I mean, it went across the nation. This global warming spell that we all experienced about froze us all to death, right? It was amazing. The cold was bitter. The surgeon was in his car. He was headed toward the medical center in Alabama to save a life. And he couldn't get there because he was shut down by circumstances. His cell phone was erratic and he was trying to make the call to connect himself to that medical center. And all that could be heard was a garbled breaking up signal. And what happened was they heard his message before his phone went dead. I'm walking. And suddenly he disappeared from his car. The police started looking for him in time because he had disappeared in the middle of a storm. This surgeon, this elderly surgeon, walked six plus miles in unbelievably difficult weather to arrive at that medical center to perform that life-saving surgery. When he arrived at the medical center, he met with the family briefly. He moved into the operating room. His gifted hands and grateful heart from God was administered in the life of a person who would have died had he not been committed to them enough to brave the weather to save their life. Dear heart, we worship a God that is committed to you to save your life. 
In fact, God is His own messenger. God is the surgeon who has come from heaven in the person of Jesus as His angel. He has become His own angel, His own messenger to save you, to lift your life, to bring you back to God, to pardon you, and yes, at times, to rebuke that in you which must change so you can be saved. We worship a committed God as Christians. The book of Malachi starts with an unusual introduction for a prophetic book. The King James Version captures the Hebrew of the first word, Massah, perfectly. That's how it starts, Massah. What does that mean? The Hebrew word here is a participular noun, and it means one who carries a burden. The book starts with God's burden, which is the weight He carries for you. The verbal root here is used in Exodus 34-7 when God says He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. In the original language, it means God carries our sins and our transgressions. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is when God takes the weight that is heavily resting on you and He puts it on Himself and He carries that weight so that you can go free and you can be forgiven. We worship a burden-bearing God who is committed to save you, who carries you when you cannot carry yourself. Malachi 1 verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I mean, what is the burden of the Lord for people who have gone astray? Ask yourself that question. What's the burden of the Lord for his children who no longer care about the Lord? What's the burden of the Lord when a prophet has to rebuke God's people because they seek to act like they're God's people? What's the burden of the Lord when his chosen possession has become cynical and arrogant as it challenges the truth of God that defines them, that makes them the people of God. What is God's burden when His people have jettisoned faith, surrendered their commitments of faith, have failed to be committed to Him when His commitment to them is overwhelmingly clear? And what is the burden of God when the claim is made by people of religion that God does not care, when God cares immensely for His people? Malachi 1 verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. What is the burden of God for you? I ask you this question personally. What is God's burden for you this day? Malachi 1 2, here we have it, very clearly stated. God says, I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. I mean, you can't get more profound than that. You may not feel loved. Maybe others have told you that God can't love you. Maybe you have let God down so severely in your life that you don't believe that God loves you. I want you to look at that verse. What is the burden of God for you today? God says, I have what? I have loved you. That is the most profound truth you can take from here. It is the truth that must shape your life and shape your commitments to God. I mean, so often in church, people come... And they're committed for reasons that don't matter. Maybe they're worried about what somebody else will think. Well, if I'm not doing this and that, then I won't look like I'm a good Christian, so I'll do it to look good. Or maybe they do it because they have this internal insecurity that says, if I serve God, then I'll make up for my deficiencies where I didn't accomplish this in life or that in life. I mean, you can find all the wrong reasons to serve God. I want to tell you the right reason. It's right there. I have loved you. God loves you. That is the basis of your commitment to Him. And it is that simple and that profound. And a heart that loves God is a heart that will be motivated not by legalism, 
Not by the cords of pressure or manipulation. I tell you, I hate it when someone tries to manipulate me into serving God. What about you? You like that? I mean, who cares about service like that? I don't. I don't like serving God when I have a hammer or a baseball bat of pressure hanging over my head. I want to know deep inside that God is with me and I'm serving God because God has served me first. He has washed my feet. He has loved me. So the burden of the Lord, very clear in Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. How many of you are loved today? Raise your hand. If you really believe the word of God, raise it high. You are loved by God. That's what the Bible teaches. It's a heavy weight for God to carry for his people with all their problems on his heart. It's not an easy thing. God loves his people in spite of their sins. The Bible's clear about this. Enfeebled and defective as the church may appear to be and is, God loves every member of the church anyway. So what is the burden of the Lord today for his church? Friend, you are the burden of the Lord. Your future, your life, your outcome I mean, if you are lost, God will be eternally pained by the loss of you. He loves you. So God says, I have loved you. And God loves you enough to talk directly to the problem that is keeping you away from him so that his love for you will be actualized into a life that is secure and a person that stands on the sea of glass at the end of time. In the book of Malachi, cynicism had replaced faith in God. Materialism had supplanted spirituality. Generosity had surrendered to a survivalist mentality. Commitments were forsaken for the pursuit of lust and convenience. The people of God had begun to challenge the most basic truths of God's revelation, of His love, His mercy, of His covenant given to Moses at Mount Sinai. It is almost as if they had ceased to be the people of God. The only string that held them to God was God's love for them. They had forsaken Him, the whole nation. That's the context of this book. The truth in Malachi 1-2 is restated as the gospel by the beloved disciple John. How many people has God loved? I mean, is it only a few or is it universal? John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That means you and me. That He did what? That He gave His only Son. That's what love is when you give of yourself. God bankrupted heaven's treasury to save you so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everyone's not going to be saved. The only people who will be saved are those who believe that God loves them and that God gave Jesus to save them. Those people will be saved. And friend, that levels the playing ground. It's not the good, the bad, or the ugly, or the profoundly rich or poor that make it in and of themselves. It's anyone who accepts Jesus as their Savior by faith. That person makes it to God's glorious land. And how many people here are described as objects of God's love? Everyone. The Bible is absolutely clear in its bold proclamation that God loves you, period. He loves you. Are we united on that today? Have I said that enough? I want to be purposely redundant with that to drive that point home because it's so easy not to get it. God loves you. Now, like I want to, but you say... How hast thou loved us? Now you've done that. Preacher says God loves you and then you challenge it. Well, that's what they're doing here. But you say, how hast thou loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. 
Jacob was the son of Isaac who had the greatest moral flaw, but the desire to follow God nonetheless. Esau could care less. Jacob lied to secure his birthright. He had sinned from the very beginning. God is saying that he loves his covenant people in a special kind of way, even though they have failed him. The church is the apple of Jesus' eye. He died to secure it as his kingdom. The person who attacks the church, in fact, it's a bad thing. When someone goes after the church and someone attacks the people of God to get their way or to make a point, do you know what the Bible teaches? The curse of God rests upon that person because they have entered into an attitude of absolute war against his covenant. Christ is the protector of the church. So if you're in the church, you're in relationship with Christ, committed to his word, you are under the protection of God's guardian protector, which is Christ, but the covenant protection. And he is jealous about that covenant. If someone tries to attack you and you've just been baptized, the Lord goes after those who attack you because he cares about you. He wants you to be saved. And so it's a very serious thing to go after his covenant people because God is committed to his people. Hell itself cannot prevail against the church that remains in the covenant by faith. So God says, I have loved you more than others because I have chosen you as my people. It's not a small thing to be baptized into the church. It's a very important thing. Baptism involves a commitment to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has committed himself to you. You know, I believe it's time in the church to stop analyzing the love of God through the spectrum of theodicy. What do I mean by that? Theodicy is the justification of God. That's where we feel like we have to justify God. We have to figure out how God can be just and loving in light of the evil world we're living in. Friend, we don't have to justify God or vindicate God's character of the world. Are you listening to me? God has already done that in Jesus at the cross of Calvary. You tell me how anyone can improve on what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary to demonstrate the love of God. It cannot be done. You can't make a statement about God that is clearer than the one that Jesus has already made. If Calvary doesn't move you to repent, nothing will. The cross of Christ is the glory of God. The cross of Christ is God's means of saving you. And we need to accept the truth in the church that God is who He claims to be. Love can only be received if you believe that God loves you. And what more can God do to show it than to send His Son to perdition on the cross of Calvary to save you from it? John 3.16 puts it simply, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life, believes in Him. Friend, the love of God won't do you one lick of good if you don't believe that God loves you. Did you hear me? It won't do you one lick of good if you don't believe. It's true. When you believe, you can receive. What you cannot achieve, you can receive. And what you cannot earn, you can discern as the gift of God. And you can say, please, in the name of Jesus, grant me that which I cannot acquire on my own. Friend, what you cannot produce, He can induce within you. And when you cannot overcome, you can come to Him who has overcome for you and will overcome in you. When Jesus Christ carried His cross up Calvary's hill, He was carrying something, wasn't He? What was He carrying? He was carrying you in his heart. As if there was no other soul, he carried you up the hill to Calvary's cross. And he gave up his eternal life for your life. 
What is the burden of the Lord? God says, I have loved you. Now, if you take nothing else from this sermon today, can it be agreed that we know from Scripture that God loves you? Yes or no? Okay. Now, what does this love mean? 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ does what? It says it controls us. So as Christians, we don't have out-of-control lives in principle, correct? Yes or no? Yes or no? If we have the love of Christ, what does that love do? It controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. You can't tell me Christ didn't die for you and die as you at the cross of Calvary. Your sins were dealt with there. Move on to the next verse. It says this, And he died for all for a good reason. What's the reason? That those who live might no longer do what? Live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. When you believe that God really loves you and you accept it, that's when your life changes. Let's pause on that one. When you believe that God really loves you and you accept it, that's when things turn around. His love controls you. He doesn't manipulate you. His love does. You live a life of gratitude because you believe He has loved you. In the gospel, ethics doesn't come from obligation and fear. It comes from gratitude. An attitude of gratitude. Your commitments in the church are made effectual by Christ's commitment to you. That's why if we have a decline in the church or we have a need for revival, it isn't the purpose of the preacher to beat the church into submission, to make it more effective. Friend, if we have failed, it's because we have not grasped the love of God. We've not believed it. We've not seized it by faith. Therefore, our ethics have not followed, which are based on gratitude. Your love for others is based on God's love for you, period. But when you don't believe that He loves you, you aren't committed to the church and you aren't committed to anything else. That's a fact. It's one thing to look committed. It's another thing to be committed. Am I right? Okay. Before Christ came the first time, there was a commitment crisis among the people of God. And just before Jesus returns the second time, there is a commitment crisis in the church before the second coming of Christ. Today in the church, people do not like to hear the preacher deal with sin from the pulpit. In fact, I can remember many times when I'll preach directly from the Word of God, they'll say, Pastor, why did you have to say that? We want to come to church so we can feel loved. I want to tell you something. If my son is doing something that threatens his life, you know how I love him? I go after him to correct him so his life will be saved. Which is love? To say something nice so he can go off the end of a cliff or to say something that needs to be said so he will know I care about him? Oh, you know the answer to that question, right? I mean, God loves us. Can God speak to us directly today or do we have to believe that he can only say things that make us feel good about ourselves? He can be direct and the Bible is very direct. And now we're moving to the direct part of the message. There are four prominent problems that engage the commitment crisis. Four prominent problems in the book of Malachi that have been repeated just before Jesus returns. Let's look at them. Prominent problem number one, the clergy. Now, am I talking about the church members here or the clergy? Clergy. Now, who's that? You or me? Okay, so I'm here speaking to myself, Pastor Micah. Let's say the elders of the church because they're technically pastors in the church as well. The clergy 
in the book of Malachi had compromised their commitment to God by offering Him less than their best effort. The indictment doesn't start with God's people. It starts with the leaders of God's people. I had to take a deep look at this this week. Am I getting slack here? Are my commitments waning in certain areas? I ask God to renew me, to give me solid commitment of excellence for His cause, to give me energy to perform His will, and not to find the easy road out. Friend, excellence means working hard and giving of myself. That's what it means. It means praying consistently and not haphazardly. It means studying the Word of God as if my life depends on it, because it does, instead of just doing enough to minister. It means giving God my best effort instead of my least effort as a servant of God. That's what it means to me. Malachi 1.6, You have despised my name, but you ask, how have we ever despised your name? It's possible to become blind as a leader in the church. It's possible to offer God sacrifices, and it really doesn't matter because it's worth nothing if it's not your best effort for God. And so I ask you a favor. Would you pray that I can give God my best effort? That I can give God my best energy, my best intellectual focus and prayer life for this church and for the cause of God in this place? How many of you lift me up in prayer? Well, good. Thank you. And I'll pray for you. But I'm the one that needs it based on this admonition. How has the clergy despised his name? That's the question. Here's the answer. Malachi 1.7. By offering polluted food upon my altar. And you say, how have we polluted it? By thinking that the Lord's table may be despised. Verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that no evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that no evil? Present that to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? When you give God less than your best, you give him really nothing. Am I right? Hear Israel, the Lord our God is one. What does it say? You shall love the Lord your God with? All your heart, all your soul, and all your might. The great Shema, Shema Yitzrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Behold, he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now what does that mean? It means God is one, His law is one. We must have undivided loyalty to Him because He is one. And friend, at the cross of Calvary, the God who is one was fractured so you could be made whole and put back together. His moral law is one. Our loyalty to God is one. And friend, God is deeply wounded and disturbed by an attitude of stinginess and gratitude and selfishness. And let me add one more word, narcissism. That acts like there is faith in the heart when God is really despised by the attitude that's inside. God emptied heaven's treasury to save us on the cross of Calvary. And when the cross of Christ is truly valued, His people will give heed. They will give their best service as a Christian. And so the indictment goes to the preacher, not the congregation. The clergy have done this. Very often, ministers of the gospel come to see their role as a job instead of a sacred calling. I mean, this is the trap. At midlife, I had to struggle with that. I've been so many years in ministry and now I'm struggling with energy. Am I doing this for the right reason? And you know what? I had to be renewed. Are you hearing me? I had to be renewed. The purpose of ministry is to love those people that Jesus died for. 
It's to make that the prominent reason of our service for Him. God emptied heaven's treasury to save you on the cross of Calvary. And the minister should be a minister of the cross of Calvary. Let me tell you what the minister should not be doing. The minister should not be doing everything else the church should be doing. Am I right? I mean, how can I do that? How can I have the time to study the Bible, to be in the homes I have to be in, to be ministering to others if the church is not mobilized for service for Jesus? That's why we're actively engaged at this point of our history, reorganizing, looking at every member here, and we don't want to leave anyone out so that every person who's committed to Jesus has a vital role in ministry. As we finish this nominating process, it's possible we'll miss a name. We're committed after that fact to review it and to make sure if that's the case that we bring others into service in the following year. Because I can't do what God has called me to do if you're not doing what God has called you to do. Does that make sense? And so the call to service on the part of the pastor involves its effect upon the whole congregation. Very often ministers of the gospel come to see their role as a job instead of a sacred calling. God is appealing to the clergy and the elders and the deacons of his church by asking them to remember that he is a father and master worthy of respect. Malachi 1.6 A son honors his father and his servant his master. If I then am a father... Where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? I mean, there's nothing more distasteful than a child who shows absolute disrespect for his father. Thanks for listening today to The Commitment Crisis and Christ's Return. Today's Reaching Your Heart. Unfortunately, due to our time constraints, we are not able to bring you the entire message at this setting. But you can go to reachingyourheart.com right now and listen to the entire message or download a copy. Look for the broadcast schedule there on the main page. Again, that's reachingyourheart.com. That same website is also available for you to help us out with a financial contribution. We so appreciate those. They help us to continue to bring you this broadcast here on this station and many other stations. Again, that's reachingyourheart.com. You'll find an opportunity there for you to donate online. To send you a contribution through the mail, the address here is Reaching Hearts International, 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. That's 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. That is also the address for the worship service this Saturday at 11 o'clock. If you're in the area, please stop by. We'd love to have you as our guest. And thanks for listening. As always, we pray God is reaching your heart. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.